the difference between being brave and stupid is stupid is doing things in an uninformed way. It's like taking risk without analysis, whereas bravery is taking the risk, understanding the risk and, and doing it even though it's scary. That's where I would draw the line on that. A lot of startup founders, if you ask them three years later or five years later, if they knew everything they knew about how hard it was going to be, a lot of them would say, if you had told me that, I would never have done this. Even the successful ones. On paper, we said, we're just going to do this and everyone's going to love our product and invest. That's what I thought. And it was so much harder. There were times where I almost gave up and just stubborn grit got me through it and it somehow worked out and it was okay. But if you had told me on day one, this is what's going to happen. And you didn't tell me that there was going to be any sort of success. It was just like, here's the road you're going to go on. I think there's a high chance I would have said, this is crazy. I'll go work at the bank. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseaa.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize homeownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.ringcast.co.id. Morning, Craig. Really excited to have you on the show. You've done such a great job incubating hundreds of startups across Southeast Asia. Excited to have your story on the podcast. Could you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me. Really happy to be here. So my name is Craig Dixon. I'm a co-founder and general partner at Accelerating Asia. I was in banking previously. Then I moved to be a co-founder of a startup, did that in, in Singapore, had, a, had an exit there. And then I moved over to the Accelerator side and co-founded Accelerating Asia a little over five years ago. I've been involved in startups, a founder and an investor for over 10 years. And on the personal side, I'm really, really into health and fitness. And I'm really passionate about improving myself, but also distributing knowledge. I think it's really confusing what's out there. I think that leads also towards success in the founders. Like there's mental health, there's physical health and things like that. So I think that that does tie along with that. So I think those are kind of my two main passions. Love traveling, love reading, but health, fitness and startups is kind of like where I love to, where I love to do my work. So how did you get into the accelerator space? What inspired you to do so? Yeah, so I was in corporate, then I did startups, had an exit, and then I was kind of floating around. What do I do next? So I do another startup. You know, what do I do? I took a few months off and then I decided that startups are really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, maybe I'll do something easier. And so I, I ran or I co-ran the Murudi Accelerator for Telstra. And that was in the Singapore office in 2016. And that was awesome because I was able to have all the resources of the corporate, including salary, but I got to work with startups and help them. And the reason I say that's easier is because I basically was a full-time mentor and advisor and, and certainly made investment decisions on the behalf of Telstra, but it's very different from what I do today. So it was a really nice way to acquire the skill sets on the other side of the table from the founder side and led towards accelerating Asia experience. I think that was, looking back, that was a pretty clear path. I obviously 
I didn't plan that, but that's how I got into the accelerator space. And that program did really well. We, we have a few startups that, that exited. We have one that's done really well and raised, I think, Series B and, and Peter Thiel and, and Sequoia and a bunch of folks jumped in on that one. And that was our early exposure to the Bangladeshi market, actually. So that really hooked me. And when that program left, or so when Telstra decided to shut that down, my co-founder at Accelerating Asia, Amr and I said, this is actually working really well. There's a big gap in the market. And we can talk about that maybe later. Why don't we just do this ourselves? Why don't we improve this thing? Why don't we make it everything we think it can be? While it's nice to have a corporate backer that comes with both resources and constraints. And so let's go ahead and see if we can do this thing ourselves. Amazing. Yeah, I've known Emra for a long time, over I think a dozen years. And it's interesting to see her own journey. She's previously on a Brave podcast as well. But I'm just curious from your perspective, you said the phrase, an accelerator that could be whatever it could be. So what is it that it could be from your perspective? What is that full potential? Yeah, I I think the thing I noticed, and I want to give my previous employer a lot of credit because I think a lot of corporates that start accelerators don't necessarily have full alignment with the startups. A lot of them are looking for innovation or PR or something like that. And I think Telstra was really good. They gave us so much leeway to run the program. But of course, you have constraints around who you can hire and what resources you have and what things you can do. So I think what we wanted to do was expand the team. So we now have a team of 12. And as far as I know, out of any of the other accelerators in the region, we have more resources to help the startups than anyone else does. Investors, and so pretty much anything they need, legal, marketing, growth, we can help the early stage startups do that. Whereas before, we didn't have that. We're super lean. We can change on a dime, just like a startup. I basically consider myself a startup in many ways. Whereas when you're in a corporate structure, you need to go up through the bureaucracy and ask for approvals and stuff. And that's fine. That's just the nature of the beast, right? But operate like a startup, pivot move, change strategy. We can make decisions on, we just invested in our first company out of the Middle East and UAE. There's a lot of places where I I couldn't do that. And we said, does this make sense? We had one meeting, awesome startup, good market. Let's make an investment and, and see how it goes. Saudi's blowing up. There's a lot of interesting things going on with Israel over there. So that, I think, ability to act more like a startup, pivot, move, utilize resources super efficiently. And then and the other thing is I consider the founders our customers and we're super close to the founders, always asking for feedback. How are things going in the program? What's missing? What can we do differently? And each cohort's different. And so the, the program has a bit of element of standardization and, and then another element that's super customized. And we're continuously getting feedback and meeting with the founders to ask them, what do they need? And then changing the program in real time based on that. I think that's an advantage of just being like lean and, and more startup So many folks know what the experience is of going through an accelerator. So what you've done differently is that you set up two accelerators over time. What are some myths or misconceptions that are about running and setting up an accelerator? I think the problem with a lot of accelerators is they don't know the problem they're solving and they don't go to the market with that. I feel like it's more top down in most cases. And so they go, hey, we are a accelerator focused on this vertical and then we're going to go out and just find startups. And I think what we tried to do is, again, on back to the startup theme and the founder theme is we wanted to identify the problem set in the market and then create a program that addressed the problem set or the gap in the market. And for us, this was based on my startup experience as a founder. There's a lot of resources at the very early age. So incubators, early stage accelerators and things like that. There's a lot of resources there. And then there's a lot of VCs. So once you have early product market fit, once you have shown your 18 months of substantial traction and you're ready for a million dollar check, there's a fair number of options in the ecosystem and you can usually raise money. But there's a point in between that we call the missing middle. And I had this as a founder where you have, I don't know, five, 10, $20,000 in monthly revenue. The early stage 
accelerators and incubators are typically valuing startups at about $1 million. So you're, you don't want to join those programs because you're going to take a big equity hit to your cap table, but you're not quite ready for the VCs yet. You're still exploring, finding your, your product market fit. So that's the gap that we fit. And I think what we do is we find high quality founders and startups who are still not quite their own product market fit, but we can see the end of the tunnel and we can see how our program can help them get there faster, more for lower chance of failure and connect them to resources, both financial and otherwise through our program. So I think that bottom up approach is probably a little bit different than some of the other accelerators and startups. The other thing is we're one of the only independent accelerators in the region. So that also creates a lot of incentive alignment between us and the founders. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the other accelerators. I think they add a lot of value. There's a lot of vertical focus accelerators sponsored by corporates like the one I used to work with. And they're very useful and, and valuable to have in the ecosystem. But with us, our number one modus operandi of the company is to help the founders succeed and have a big exit. And, and so I think the incentives are maybe more aligned with us. There's a big difference in quality between decelerators. And I obviously think I have a really good quality program <laughs> but, or else I wouldn't be doing this. But founders, I think, need to be really careful because there are a lot of programs that may not be worth the time and resources they put into it. And I think they need to be just really judicious with their I, I think there's a lot of confusion about the difference between incubators and accelerators. And so... Every time somebody calls us a, a, an incubator, I'm, I kind of get a little bit like, no, they're not the same thing. Incubators are very early stage and helping um, startups that are just getting their MVP or just getting started. Accelerators are typically when you already have something running, the, the, the wheels are on the car and, and the car is just starting to move. But it's a, it's a little bit of a, it's a small engine. It's a 1910 engine. You know, we don't even have the Model T yet. And, and the accelerator helps you get to from the Model T to the Bugatti or whatever. I don't know if that analogy. And that's a bit of a misconception that is, I don't know if it's ever going to go away. I mean, it's definitely tricky, right? Because a lot of tailwinds incubators, right? So there are governments, there are universities that are trying to put there. And on the other side, there are also VCs, right? That are being true, kind of like go in that search, right? And obviously they're adding, you know, portfolio support and to kind of like do that in order to compensate for the additional taking. So it always feels to me like accelerators are one of those like pretty tight spaces that's kind of like get us. Do you think that's a fair observation or how do you? It's really interesting. You're right. You're seeing everyone in the investor space has been coming down. And I think that's accelerated as a result of the recent turn in the VC market overall. You're even seeing private equity come into series C and B. You're seeing the series C and B folks come into A and the A folks are coming into earlier stage as well. I haven't seen any friction really between startups that we want to program deciding not to cut our program and go with a VC instead. Typically, we do a lot of work with the VCs and supplement what they're doing. I think a lot of VCs say that they offer a lot of support and they're trying to do the A16Z model with all these extra services. But my experience is most VCs spend most of their time fundraising. They're typically quite reactive. And that's just like the nature of how the, the system works. And so I think the reason that we're also different is we have this accelerator infrastructure that's separate from the VC infrastructure and has a separate team and that's dedicated to that. So I, I think it's offering nearly as much support as we do. And I think we complement and work well with the, the early stage VCs who want to invest in startups in our portfolio. So I think we've never had an issue with that friction. It's actually been a positive so far. But certainly, who knows, right? As VCs morph into more of an accelerator, maybe we will have that friction in the future. But so far, it's been a positive. So interesting, of course, is that as you build out this accelerator, you've also been looking at more countries, right? So you're looking at Southeast Asia. I know you've been also looking at Bangladesh, et cetera. 
So how do you think about all these different countries? What trends do you see? What patterns? Are you yeah. So we're in 15 countries now and you really have to keep your pulse on things because you have a few different elements towards considering an investment. You obviously have the company, the founders, and then you have the market. And then you not only are looking at what's happening today, but you're looking at five plus years down the road, because that's when hopefully things will start to look towards an exit. There's overall trends and then there's like micro trends. And I, I don't think we need to dig into the micro trends because we don't have enough time to go through every country. But I think macro trends are probably pretty similar to what you'll see across the globe where VC investment is down. However, early stage VC investment has been fairly robust. And so when you look at the startups in our portfolio, they're raising money at a very similar rate to two, three, four, four years. So we're not seeing a big downturn in the overall number of deals closed and investment raised by our portfolio companies. What we are seeing is that there's more due diligence. Institutional deals do take longer. There's like less suitor. We had startups previously that had two, three term sheets, and now they're getting one, maybe two, and it's taking six months instead of three months or something like that. But I think a high quality startup can always raise money in any market, especially at the early stage. And especially if you are, if you have good unit economics and you can sustain yourself, it's the irony of investments and the and banks are like this too, right? Banks always want to give money to people who don't need it. And I think <laughs> investors are like that too, they're risk averse and they go, oh, you're cash flow positive. Sure. I'll give you money. But like, why do you need money if you're cash flow positive? I mean, sometimes you do. But so we have not seen a downturn in the early stage, pre-seed stage in most of the markets we operate for high quality startups. Having said that, you want to look at our portfolios maturing. They're getting into A's and B's. And the farther you go down, the more it's been hit by the downturn. And so what we have seen in the portfolio is that the appreciation and value of our portfolio has slowed down over the past one and a half to two years. Now, the appreciation overall is really good, but it has slowed down because you're seeing less delta between an A and a B round valuation. You're seeing a lower A valuation than you would have seen. And so that delta between where we come in is not as high or two ago. I actually think that's mostly healthy. I think long-term startups need to be, quote unquote, fairly valued. And people can argue about what that means. But I think we got ahead of our skis in these overdone valuations. And I also think too many mo business models that could never really generate profit or value for the customer where people thought they could skip to IPO and then throw whatever was left onto the retail investor. And then we saw that happen. Sometimes you can be successful doing that. Trends-wise, AI, I'm reviewing cohort nine. And, you know, we have about 700 applications. I've never seen so many decks that say AI. And it's like, everything's AI. There's like cleaning companies that have AI. And I know founders need to do what they need to do to market themselves to what the current thing is. It was crypto and blockchain. I saw everyone adding blockchain unnecessarily to their business models. And, and now it's AI. That's a trend. I don't blame the founders. I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, but I think sophisticated investors are not going to fall for that. So maybe at the early stage, some angels will fall for it. But I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter really what you're doing. Every good founder and every good startup will be fine. And I tell my founders, if you can't fundraise, it's probably your fault. <laughs> and I'm here and I'm here to help you with that. So I'm not trying to be accusatory, but I think founders really need to look in the mirror and be like, the market's telling you something's wrong. I know what that is and fix it or pivot or whatever it is. So go to an accelerator or just go to your mentor advisory panel. If you have a board, whatever it is, and find out what's broken and, and try to fix it and, and you'll be fine. And I had that experience too. I, as a founder, I, I wallowed around and made a bunch of mistakes. And then in retrospect, there was a big problem. I had a big personnel gap in my team. And once we filled that, all of a sudden we we're getting term sheets and raising money and everything just started clicking. And so I think if you can't raise money, go talk to people, go try to get direct feedback. It's not always easy from potential investors. Find out what's wrong, plug that gap or do a pivot or whatever you need to do. 
And uh, on that note, I understand you've been working with family offices quite a lot recently. So I'd love to hear about your thoughts and observations. We've seen, especially in Singapore, I think it's doubled the number of family offices and the assets under management in the past like year or two. And that's been a lot of new resources and new money and new people who are like very smart and, ha and have resources to add to the market. Often they don't really know what they're doing and they have trouble identifying uh, deal flow. They have trouble understanding how to do diligence. Our fund is a really good fit for these types of smaller and earlier stage family offices to help them plug those gaps and help them get access to deal flow, help them understand how we do due diligence and, and, and combine with you know, whatever questions they have. When we have some of our investors who are family offices interested in the startup in one of our cohorts, I'll often do a joint call with them and have a call afterwards with them and help them with this is a good investment for us. Does it make sense? And then we help them with documentation and legal. And I think the other thing that's also valuable is I think a lot of investors, including other folks that aren't necessarily VCs who does, it's not just the investment today. When you have a round later and another investor comes in and it's series A, series B, because we usually come in at pre-seed or seed, we invest in safe notes. The safe notes are converted. A lot of the investment documents, as you know, can be 50 to 100 pages long. I mean, if you're a family office that just has a couple people working on this, how are you going to do diligence? All of these things, make sure that the VC's documents are being fair to you or being fair to your founders. How do you make sure that your safe notes or whatever you're investing in are converting at the appropriate share class, the appropriate number of shares on the cap table? Don't get me started on like doing share calculations on rounds. That's just, it's just such a pain in the butt. Anyway, so we, we do all that. Yeah. And you get like circular logic errors on Excel and I'm just like, oh my God. But we have a team, we have legal counsel that goes through all this stuff. And so our fund, a lot of them are looking to co-invest and get access to our deal flow. And when they do, what will happen is they'll get that email from the VC or whatever that says, hey, sign this thing. And they're like, what? I don't know what this is. And so they'll ping that I would consider to be not founder friendly or not fair to other investors that we'll push back on. And only once we've gone through the whole process, like go back to our investors and say, yeah, I think it's good. If, if you're ready, you can go ahead and sign that. So I think that's another thing that early stage investors don't think about is if things are successful, you're going to have three, four more rounds and then some sort of exit and you're going to have to sign these documents. And if you don't have the resources to really understand and review them, that can be challenging as well. I think that's been a good fit for us to fit in with the earlier and smaller family offices who may not have as, as many resources on the on things and, and we can help them plug that gap. And, and that's been, I think, a good fit for what's changed in the market, especially in like Singapore and Southeast Asia with just so many new family offices coming in. And also investors who perhaps were in equities or private equity, or, and they're not familiar with early stage startup investing, which is a whole different animal to understand how to do diligence early stage startups versus later stage companies that have a lot of data and analytics to look at. Yeah. So for a family office, like kind of like getting started, right? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I think it's just partnering. It certainly doesn't have to be us, but go out and leverage the resources of what's out in the market. What I really like about Singapore, especially, and I, I think this is what I also experienced when I was in the US is like everyone's really happy to share and help and connect. And so I think if you're like a new family office starting up, go to events, network, just start talking to people in the ecosystem, find out where you fit. And in that part of the market, who are the best resources you can have and just build out that network. I think that's the number one thing you can do because you don't have the resources typically as a smaller entity. So go out and find other folks who have forces you're missing, whether that's an accelerator, an incubator, other VCs. And there's a lot of wonderful co-working spaces and things that you can go to events, meet founders and meet other investors. A lot of times you can build out also a network of fellow investors who have similar needs as you do. And so what we've done at Accelerating Asia is we typically have subgroups of our investors who often co-invest together. 
and they like to talk together and almost build a little due diligence panel. And I think family offices would be well off considering that as well. Are there other family offices who are similar size, writing similar checks, interested in similar types of startups that you can partner with? And together you can operate as a large team in some ways and provide balance and things like that. Um, so I think those are probably the two main things. It's just like the networking and building out your little advisory committee or whatever you want to call it, which I think is is really valuable. As you think through all of this, how do you see ecosystem progressing? Do you see it becoming more transparent, more deeper, more networked, more family offices? Or how would you think about it? Yeah, I mean, the ecosystem overall is like so much more robust than when I started about 10 years ago. I think the connections between the regions are way better. I think when I started, Indonesia and Singapore weren't even that well connected in many ways. And now it's very easy to do cross-border as well. You're seeing a lot more money come into the ecosystem as well. I think the problem I see in the ecosystem is more with the later stage and exit part of the ecosystem, where we've had some exits, but they haven't done well post-IPO. And so I do have a worry that we need more solid unit economics, high margin, high cash flow, M&As and IPOs. And those companies are out there. But what we've seen so far is it on the exit side is not that. And so I do worry a little bit about the kind of brand of Southeast Asia startup exits taking a hit because of that. And that affects all of us that are in the earlier stage because obviously we're looking for exits, right? So I, I really hope we can see, and we're very strict on only investing in companies that have a clear path towards profitability and cash flow positivity. And that's served us well in the current downturn. And I hope we can see more of those the exits instead of kind of the high revenue, but also high burn entities that has been a lot of what we've seen so far. But the 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 overall picture is super encouraging. And I think if you look at what the US went through in 2008 to 2015 or so, and obviously beyond, China followed two or three years later. India, I think, is probably a little bit ahead of Southeast Asia. You see a positive flywheel, startups exit, and then they spin off investors and they spin off new founders who have more sophistication and more resources. And then that just feeds and feeds on itself and creates a positive feedback loop. And so I know at Monk's Hill, you guys have taken on some of those founders who've exited and a lot of the VCs are hiring these folks. Some of them are starting their own like micro VCs or they're starting new startups that have a higher chance of success because they have already done it. And that's super encouraging. We have some LPs as well that have gone through that route and exited from some of these big IPOs and things like that. So that bodes extremely well for the ecosystem. So I guess the pros and cons there. And I don't want to be too negative because the negative I talked about is correct. I think that's just a matter of when. So I hope it's sooner rather than later. Something else I'm really encouraged by is the current downturn in the market has resulted in tons and tons of secondary activity. And that's negative for a lot of the people involved because they're going to have to sell at a big discount because they need to liquidate to return money to LPs, at the usually at the later stages. However, what's happening is you're going to probably see much more liquidity in secondary markets because of this. You're seeing a lot of infrastructure being built out. You're seeing a lot of new companies that are getting into the secondary market in startups. And what that should result in is the option for more liquidity for early stage investors along the way through secondary sales that we didn't have before, or at least we didn't have much of before. And I think that's when you look at markets like the US, that's a little bit of a disadvantage that we have compared to other markets like that. The other thing I'm seeing is a lot more syndicate activity and streamlining of the process of creating syndicates, both through costs and through bureaucracy. And I think that bodes really well, too, for startups, especially at the early stage, who can cobble together a lot of small checks without funking up the cap table with too many investors. So I think those are two things that I've seen that I think are 
going to be really helpful going forward to create more options for startups to access capital and for investors to access liquidity if they need it. And one of the big things in startups is that, especially in eight or 10 years for an exit, assuming you get an exit, a lot of investors aren't comfortable with locking up their money for that long. So if you can have a robust secondary market that gives them the option to exit along the way, you should stimulate more interest in people to invest in startups in the first place. And that obviously is bodes well for the market as well. So I think just a few things that are interesting in, in the ecosystem. And could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? Yeah, so I maybe a lot of your guests, I recoil from calling myself brave, but I'll do my best to have an answer. And I think also there's often a fine line between bravery and stupidity. So I think this story could have gone either way. Well, the one I'll talk about is actually my transition from corporate into startups. And I basically got an MBA and I had job offers from very large global banks. And then I went to run a travel technology startup. It really makes no sense. I'd never been in travel, <laughs> but I had a friend who had identified this problem and I thought it made sense. And so I, I joined as a co-founder and wow, I had no idea what I was doing. I look at my early pitch deck and I'm like, who would ever invest in this company? I made every mistake in the book, but over time I got better. I learned how to pitch it. Like I mentioned before, we filled that gap and we got VC funding. And so I think it was brave to just completely change careers. I just moved to Asia. I didn't know anybody in the market and to just take the plunge and try it. And things worked out pretty well, but it could have completely gone the other way and it could have been a big failure and a waste of time. And so I think bravery is, um, in, in retrospect, it's brave, but uh, it could have easily been not so brave. You said the difference between bravery and stupidity. So could you share what you think the difference is? Okay, so the, the trite answer to that is if it works out, it's brave. And if it doesn't, it's stupid, right? So that's kind of the trite answer. <laughs> but it's not really a fair answer because there's more to it, right? I guess the difference between being brave and stupid is stupid is doing things in an uninformed way. It's like taking risk without analysis. Whereas bravery is like taking the risk, understanding the risk and, and doing it even though it's scary. So maybe that's where I would draw the line on that. And I think my brave story, for whatever it's worth, was a little bit in the middle because I was pretty ignorant. I mean, a lot of startup founders, if you ask them three years later or five years later, if they knew everything they knew about how hard it was going to be, a lot of them would say, if you had told me that, I would never have done this. Even the successful ones, I think they'd say, you know, on paper, we said, oh, we're just going to do this and everyone's going to love our product and invest. And it's like, that's what I thought. And it was so much harder. And there were times where I almost gave up and just stubborn grit, whatever you want to call it, got me through it. And it somehow worked out and it was okay. But if you had told me on day one, this is what's going to happen. And you didn't tell me that there was going to be any sort of success. It was just like, here's the road you're going to go on. I think there's a high chance I would have said, this is crazy. No, I'll go work at the bank. I mean, what's interesting is that you're saying it's not binary, right? It's kind of a blend, right? Between, uh, you know, it could be both brave so. and mildly stupid. I mean, maybe you need some of that ignorance. Maybe ignorance is a nicer word than stupidity. I think you need some of the ignorance to be brave in some circumstances, because if you had all the information, you would think it was stupid and not brave. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to be risk aware. I just need to be, need to be risk ignorant. There we go. Yeah, that's a succinct way to, to tie it up. On that note, I'd love to summarize the three big uh, takeaways I got from this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about, you know, accelerating Asia and talking a lot about why you started building this because this is actually a second time building it. But more importantly, you wanted to build it the way it could become the full potential which you have done amazingly over the past uh, six years. And I think it was interesting also for you to share inside a point of view about what it takes to run it well. And also, I think a little bit about the market dynamics between, you know, like you said, incubators, VCs, and portfolio success, and 
what you think the target segment, but also the right approach is for startups that need to kind of like kick it up a gear and kind of like get the engine going and accelerate. The second thing you so much is sharing a little bit about your point of view about family offices and the people that you've been partnering with. That was an interesting set of conversations about, okay, what do they want to do? What they can actually do? What they need to do to partner with, you know, people like yourself or other players in the ecosystem. So I think it was an interesting set of, you know, information transparency, but also like you said, kind of like resource sharing as well as, you know, knowledge about what needs to be done uh, that's there. So I thought it was a really interesting set of conversation there as well. Lastly, thanks for point of view on, you know, bravery and what it means to you. I especially enjoyed the part where you said, is it bravery or stupidity? Is it binary? Is it a blend? I thought it was interesting to hear in your personal perspective about how you've reflected on your own personal journey about what has been the ability for you to differentiate what the risk is to accommodate it, but also I think the benefit of hindsight to see what actually happened. I thought it was nice to hear that uh, point of view. So on that note, thank you so much, Craig, for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.